The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays live from 10 to 11, and at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can get it on MP3 and listen to it anytime you want. This morning, I have two guests, uh, both authors, Julia Chopik, author of Honest Medicine, Effective, Time-Tested, Inexpensive Treatments for Life-Threatening Diseases. Um, she's a best-selling author, and her book, Honest Medicine, introduces effective, time-tested, inexpensive, and I guess the key word here is inexpensive treatments for such life-threatening diseases such as MS, epilepsy, liver disease, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and a lot, many more. Second guest uh, is Becky Hawkins, and uh, she is also an author. She's a nurse, and her new book is Transitions, A Nurse's Education About Life and Death. And her book is all about hospice and the stories that she's accumulated over the years. And she's been a hospice nurse, I think, for almost over 30 years. But my first guest is here, and uh, Julia, how are you this morning? Julia Chopik, and uh, we're going to be talking about her book, Honest Medicine. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Terrific. Glad to be here, Catherine. Yeah, well, your book is, I get, it's very timely because there are a lot of people out there, and I'm one of the baby boomers who, unfortunately, I have a lot of friends and family who have these diseases and who are paying a lot of money, and, uh, uh, this whole healthcare system thing is is not working well for them necessarily. So let's start talking about this. The uh, honest, what is honest medicine? Well, honest medicine. My website is also called honest medicine. Okay. Catherine, and the and the tagline is my dream for the future. Um, it, it's about what I hope will happen, and I hope one of the things that will happen is that that more more professionals, more doctors will be telling patients about treatments like the ones I wrote about in in Honest Medicine because I really set the bar high with these treatments. You know, they had to be treatments that, in the way I like to put it, Catherine, is if the pharmaceutical industry didn't kind of dictate to doctors what they prescribe, these treatments would be the standard of care. Yeah, and I'm sure you're right. And you're putting kind of a qualitative, but kind of, I don't even think it's kind of, you know, I think uh, you're absolutely right. If uh, they didn't do that, we would be getting less expensive medication. Let's talk a bit about your background and how you got into this writing the book, you know, your, you know, what you do and, and your own, because your personal story here, I think, had a lot to do with, with all of this, uh, with writing the book and your interest, obviously, and, and, uh, you know, these lower-priced medicines and... Yes. Um, 
I grew up at the daughter of a doctor, and I won't go into great detail, but he gave me a great skepticism, my dad did, about the medical profession, because he told me to watch out, you know, that doctors often did things for the money. And uh, then, you know, so I kind of did my best to stay away from the medical system. But then in 1990, my husband, Tim, at the age of 40, came down with a cancer, came down with, was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor. And of course, you can't just say, okay, we're going to give you herbs or something. So I was thrown in to the medical system, and I had to start being very aware of what was happening. And I noticed that he was getting a lot of treatments that were very toxic. And, uh, but the main thing was that I started jumping in and uh, finding treatments for him that went along with, you know, we did do what the doctor said. You can't have a brain tumor and not have surgery. I mean, that would not be right. But uh, so he had, the, he had the surgery, the radiation, and the chemo, and he became very debilitated by the treatments. And I said, boy, I better start finding things that help him out. And, of course, these things that I found, I found a nutritionist whose area was cancer, a wonderful woman named Jean Wallace. And uh, Tim, my husband, started to be doing much better. And, uh, you know, of course, the insurance didn't pay for these treatments. But what did I care, you know? I mean, he was getting better. But what I found was the doctors were not at all interested. He became their miracle patient. I mean, he outlived his prognosis. He was supposed to live three years. He lived 15. And the doctors weren't at all interested. And I'm like, what's going on here? You Were they know? not interested in, you mean, in the medications he was getting or the treatment or the, alter- I'm calling it alternative treatment. They they. They weren't interested in, the, in anything that we were doing, just like you said. You know, I guess in those cases it would be called alternative if you want to call diet and supplements alternative, which they do. But then in 2001, I had a real aha moment that something really terrible was going on with American medicine, and that was that Tim, he had a second brain tumor and a recurrence. And this time, his skin would not heal, you know, along the suture line. And Catherine, the doctors did eight extra surgeries in order to try to find two pieces of skin that would heal, and nothing worked. And he, all that happened was that Tim became sicker and sicker from the treatments, no doubt about it. You know, the treatments, the, the extra surgeries on his poor body made him, uh, made him uh, paralyzed, terribly brain injured, incontinent, bed-bound. And then through a doctor friend, a holistic doctor, I found a treatment that worked and it healed his skin. I don't want to make it sound like snake oil, but it's a wonderful thing. It's pieces of material. It's called Silver Lawn, and it was FDA approved for all non-healing wounds. So I got permission from the doctors. He was in the hospital to put it on his head. And wouldn't you think that when they saw something heal that they had not been able to make heal, that they would stand up and take notice? I mean, I thought they they would be as excited as I was. But the amazing thing was that not only weren't they not excited, and by the way, this was a lot cheaper treatment than all these surgeries. You know, they were making a ton of money from the surgeries. Let's make no mistake about it. Well, I have to, uh, you know, uh, jump in here because, I mean, 
Julia, is it all about the money? I mean, I mean, is it strictly all about the money, the the expensive treatments, the most expensive, you know, whether it's surgery or whether it's the medication and the drugs, the pharmaceuticals, um, that it really for the physicians that is evolved into that, that it is, it's so hard to, it, actually, you know what, it's not hard to believe, but this is such a dramatic story that you're telling us. And, and, and you're someone who really, I mean, your father was a doctor, but what, your background pub, was public relations, right? right. You're not exactly. Not in the medical field, at least no. not initially. No. Yeah. But the thing is, you ask a very interesting question, Catherine, and I actually feel that with a lot of doctors and maybe more of the specialists, it's very much about money, but I don't think they see it that way. I mean, I can't believe that. It would just, it would just make me, my skin crawl, you know, to think that, that doctors saw you only as a dollar sign. So what do you think it is? Here you I have think- a husband who's being healed by other medications that are less expensive. You found a product that the FDA approved that's a lot less expensive that would heal his wound, and yet there's no, respo- there's no positive response no, from the I- doctors. Actually, I have to tell you that one doctor, instead of the positive response, he actually sought me out. And he said, you know, and by the way, this is a doctor who really liked me before this. He said, I don't think it was what you found that worked. I said, well, with the accent on you? I said, well, what do you think it was? Are you ready for this, Catherine? He said, I think it was the vancomycin that he's on. That's the IV antibiotic. I said, but Dr. So-and-so. He's been on, on, on vancomycin. I was stuttering, you know, six weeks. That vanco is like that. It kicks in. I was stunned. Well, so, he, didn't, he didn't want to give you any, any credit at all, I guess, or feel, or there's a whole maybe quality of being very defensive. I mean, that's that, what, yes. yeah. And also uncurious. You know, this came through to me when I was interviewing people for my book, For Honest Medicine, and I would hear, you know, stories about how the treatments that I wrote about, that I chose to to write about, um, you know, for all these diseases, their doctors did not want to believe that these treatments were working. They, They just, they weren't curious. People would bring them a lot of information, you know, about these treatments, just like I did for the doctors. I, 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 the, the product that healed Tim's head was called Silver Lawn, and um, I... And it's still on the market, I assume? Oh, yes. Something. And so how much, let's say, do you have the actually dollars and cents? I mean, how much did it cost as compared to what, you know, the other treatment that he was receiving cost? Well, well, you know, you have to look at it also. Let's let's say it costs, and and I have to tell you, I did look it up, you know, recently because because as you know, all kinds of things, you know, you have to look up a current price. But I found it was it, that probably what we used, and it was donated to us this in in this particular case. But it maybe let's say a maximum of for for his whole treatment that healed his skin, I would say a maximum of a thousand dollars. And I hate to even think. I mean, not only did the surgeries give the doctors a ton of money, but don't forget the hospital costs, the cost of when his his uh, suture line kept leaking. They put drains in his head. All of these things probably mounted. I'm, I'm blocking in a sense because 
it just got too too upsetting for me to see the bills. You know, I also see them. besides the cost. I mean, I, when yeah. you have multiple surgeries, you're putting oh, yourself at risk. I mean, very having any kind of surgery. So that's another thing. You know, and I also want to get into because we're talking about you know people who are listening will think, okay, he had an aggressive form of brain cancer, a tumor. What about some of these other diseases that we're talking that you that you mentioned in stories in the book about other kinds of diseases that can be treated without costly medication? Can we get into some of those? I would love to. Yeah. You mentioned several that are autoimmune diseases. May I start with that one? Yeah, go ahead. Because it's one very inexpensive treatment costing 25 to $40 a month, depending on where you get it, you know, from, from which compounding pharmacy you get it. But it's called low-dose naltrexone. And I don't know if we have time for the background story, so I will kind of condense it. But a very creative doctor named Dr. Bernard Bahari, this is in the 1980s. If you go on my website, honestmedicine.com, you'll see an interview with him. That but, was, Julie, we also have to, not everybody knows what an autoimmune uh, disease is. I mean, the multiple MS, they know MS, that. Lupus and liver disease, we'll take those three. Okay, well, let's take um, MS, okay. lupus, Crohn's, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, uh, there's a list of, of about 180 of these that low-dose naltrexone has been shown to have a positive effect on. And uh, it, it's quite amazing. Uh, autoimmune diseases are diseases of the immune system, as it says, and doctors routinely try to shut down the immune system with very expensive, very toxic drugs. And uh, this Dr. Bahari found that a very low dose of a drug that had been approved in the 1980s for, at high doses for another purpose was very effective for stopping the progression of the first one he tried it on was multiple sclerosis. And then people started coming to him from all over the world. You know, they heard about this, and he found that it was very effective for rheumatoid arthritis and then lupus. And now there are lots of doctors throughout the world who are prescribing it. That's the good news. Well, that is the good news because when you do have an autoimmune disease, it's a chronic kind of a thing. So, I mean, you, you're constantly having to have treatment for it. So, you, uh, obviously, it's going to become very expensive if you're using very expensive drugs or pharmaceuticals, right? Do you, want to, do you want to know how much some of them cost? I mean, I just, when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God. Um, the people who contributed chapters to, to, my, to Honest Medicine all had multiple sclerosis. I'm thinking of doing an updated version with, you know, success stories from, about other, uh, other uh, diseases, other conditions. But so I became kind of a, a shocked expert on the cost of the MS drugs. There are several of them, and if anyone who's listening wants to have an article, a link to an article about the cost, please have them write to me at julia at honestmedicine.com because it's a shocking thing. Probably, they, well, not probably, but the, the uh, treatments range in the thirty to $40,000 a year bracket, whereas low-dose naltrexone is about $400 a year. You know, this is, this is a shocking thing, and the multiple sclerosis drugs are so toxic. There's one of them called Tysabri, and it's probably the most expensive one. It is the most. 
do you know that it's so dangerous, it can, it can cause a brain infection, that in, in addition to the cost of the Tysabri, the patient has to have an MRI costing several thousand dollars every, every few months. You know, so, well, yeah, well, one thing builds on the next, and, and I've had, unfortunately, friends recently and relatives diagnosis, diagnosed with cancer, and the, those chemicals that they give, that they get or get the chemotherapy destroys your immune system so that if there's a, you know, and it's, they're very, very toxic and uh, not necessarily destroys the cancer either, but does destroy one's immune system. And uh, it's really scary to watch, you know, someone go through that process. So, but uh, don't people say to you, but okay, come on, you know, if this is really true, Julia, what, why, why isn't any, anybody else doing anything about it? Or is somebody else besides you writing? I mean, you've got the book, Honest Medicine. Is anybody else on the bandwagon for this? Yeah, you know something? The answer is that, that uh, I, I, I kind of created um, a, uh, a, a small topic area, you know, inexpensive, non-toxic, uh, effective treatments. But, yes, a lot of people are talking about it. If you go on Facebook, you'll see that there are many patient groups devoted to low-dose naltrexone. Where, and it, it's very exciting because we, and I say we because I'm a member of a lot of the groups, um, they share information about doctors who will prescribe it. And there, it's a growing number, thank God. Are there any medical centers, uh, you know, as you say, we can go on Facebook, go on your Facebook page, but any, in any parts of the country that we would recognize, any of the major medical centers kind of taking a look at this, at these, these drugs that are um, rather non-toxic and also not cost, and, and not costly? Or you know, are there, no? You mentioned, yes, because one of the treatments that I write about is uh, the ketogenic diet for for pediatric epilepsy, and a wonderful man named Jim Abrams, he's actually the writer-director of the, you remember the, I don't know if you remember the airplane movies, those funny movies? I do. He's he's, Jim Abrams, the person responsible for them. He has a great sense of humor. But in 1994, his his little boy, Charlie, a one-year-old, came down with epilepsy, and Jim was, I mean, his kid was put on, the baby was put on so many anti-seizure medications that he was stumbling around, you know. He had to have a harness on him. Jim, through a very interesting way, through his own research, found the ketogenic diet. I won't tell you how the doctors how the doctors just tried to dissuade him, but he, he did it. And the ketogenic diet, which is a very high-fat, low-protein, low-carbohydrate diet, it stopped his seizures after 48 hours. And here's the best part. It does not. You know how anti-seizure medications will have to be taken for a long time? This diet, it somehow turns the epilepsy around, and they don't have to take, they don't have to do the diet for more than, say, two to five years. So it reverses the whole process of, of, it does. of the disease. It does. That's amazing. But you and, didn't, and, but, and, okay, that's he's one person, but no, there are, did yes. you say there are or there are not medical facilities around the country that are starting to get it, taking a yes. look at least? Are there? Yes. Absolutely. This was this is my success story about hospitals and and uh, and medical centers because Jim set up a website called CharlieFoundation.org. Charlie spelled C H A R L I E. If you go to it and click on hospitals, you will see 
that, that th- it's all thanks to Jim's efforts. And I tell the story in, in my book, in Honest Medicine, about how Jim made this his life's work, you know, uh, to spread the word about the diet. And he has gotten a nutritionist, a dietitian, who trains medical facilities and medical personnel. There's, o- there's over 150 around the world that are now doing the diet. Places- well, that's terrific. And in that, I mean, that's what you have to do. And I also, I mean, I, I mentioned medical centers, Julia, but medical schools, I mean, because it has to do with training, too. You know, it the- does. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, as, you, as I'm sure you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies fund a lot of the medical schools. So, but the word is getting out. Isn't the internet wonderful? Yeah, so, <laughs> can't get away with it now. Yes, the internet is wonderful. It's great, and uh, and your website. You know, and actually, we should mention that now too. Again, because your website has a lot of information, obviously, and that's called Honest Medicine too. Yes, that's that's my tagline. I'm thinking of trademarking the the phrase because that's what I stand for. You know, making it so that someday. All of medicine will be honest. Yeah, well, I was going to say so that honest medicine isn't an oxymoron, (laughs) which maybe right now it is. Uh, But then taking it a step further, because you said, you know, and I think this is really true. I mean, our healthcare system is in jeopardy. We spend, what, hundreds of millions and billions, billions with a B of dollars uh, that we can't afford on our healthcare system because of just what you've been talking about. So, what about Congress? What about politicians? Do you do anything to, to get to, to, to Washington to get the word you know, out? I mean, yeah. you know, that's not, that's not the area that, that I do. There's a wonderful woman named Rosemary Gibson who's written books about, she's written a recent one about the cost of health care, the battle over health care, and she and I have recently gotten in contact. The book, the Battle Over Healthcare by Rosemary Gibson is excellent. And she talks about how, you know, she's trying that route, you know, with the political. She gives talks, you know, to, to Congress and all of that. But she talks about how the, the bloating, you know, the way, the way uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies are not made to toe the line and charge less and, you know, the whole thing. And she and I are talking about perhaps talking, you know, adding these treatments and treatments like them to the mix about what we're, we go public, you know, go to political people. Do I think that it will get, I, I think change will be made through individual patients. Yeah, I, I, I think really, you're right. Bloating is the word. We are a bloated society, I think, in all areas, but particularly, particularly in the healthcare system. And, uh, you know, the first thing, uh, even when you don't have a chronic illness or a serious illness, I know for myself, the first thing the doctor wants to do is uh, drug you. It's terrible. Uh, yeah, and it's and it's really common. I think, and it, it, it's there is getting this this groundswell of okay, maybe as a patient, you really have to question this stuff, and as it gets so costly and so expensive, and we live longer, and so you are really confronted with you know, the longer you live, you you know, you have to things do wear out or wear down, and so you. Like I mean, I think I think especially perhaps the baby boomer generation are looking for alternative resources or alternative sources for medical care. Do you, they I don't are. Know if you found that when you were doing your book or interviewing people. They absolutely are, and it's absolutely wonderful. But you know what the sad part is, Catherine? Usually people don't reach out to learn about treatments like the ones, and they are reaching out. They are writing to me. They are calling me. They're finding my phone number and calling me. 
but they often don't reach out until the disease. They've been treated with all these very toxic. I can't. I can't stress how how, how toxic a lot of these drugs are for the autoimmune diseases and how toxic. So you mentioned that's really an important point. I think they wait to things become a in a, cri- a crisis mode, and you really want to get people to start right from the beginning so that they do. Yeah, they don't have to wait till they're bankrupt or they're so sick or their immune system is so compromised, but start in the beginning. That's the hard part, I think, though, Julia, because people are, like, afraid to go against their doctor's recommendations. Like, well, maybe if, you know, I don't do that. It's really hard to, to kind of, uh, in, the, in the beginning anyway, to, yeah. Oh. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. Yeah. But I'm looking for ways. I'm, I'm, you, you're, you put your finger on it. I'm talking with people, with experts. I'd love to talk with you, you know, privately <laughs> sometime about ways we can, and especially with the media. That's where I think the media and the Internet, uh, radio especially, because you have such time, but and the Internet to find people before they get compromised by these toxic treatments that often don't work. You know, if you get a person with multiple sclerosis who was already in a wheelchair, you know, that this is, they've been many, many years taking these toxic drugs, and in their cases, they haven't worked for them. I want to stress that some, in a few cases, in some cases, the, the drugs do work, but in many, they don't. And then they get to the point where they're in a wheelchair and in some cases have terribly compromised speech. And if you give them low-dose naltrexone, it will not, in most cases, reverse it. It will stop the progression when it works. So you'd want to catch people before, you know, when they're first diagnosed, and that's when the doctors are not telling them about yeah. treatment. Well, and that's our challenge. Let's say that that really is the challenge. But going to websites like yours, honestmedicine.com, honestmedicine.com, and your book, Honest Medicine, uh, Effective, Time-Tested, Inexpensive Treatments for Life-Threatening Diseases. Um, that's a place to start, get people talking and, and uh, blogging. And getting the information out there, I think, is uh, obviously is is really uh, that's where we have to start. So, how do you handle? Well, I should, probably shouldn't ask this now because we only have a minute left. But left, but I'm thinking you're getting such a you are starting to get or you have such a great response. Uh, how are you going to handle all this? Well, I'm going to handle it the way you know. This is I love talking with people and helping them out. You know, it's sort of like a a reverse give back. It's like I'm doing what I wish that I, I wish I had had people around me who just said, Julia, you know, this is what you do for Tim. Yeah. I had that kind of that, I, you know, we do have to say goodbye, but I think I want to end with that because that's it. Uh, I think if uh, other people can um, have people like you around and you're kind of, by getting the word out there, you're creating those individuals. I think you're doing great work. I, I, I'll say it again. Julia Chopik, Honest Medicine, and go to honestmedicine.com. And we'll talk again. We'll have you on the show again because there's lots more to talk about. You are a wonderful interviewer. And Thank I, you. I, I would come back in a, in a heartbeat. Terrific. Thanks. Okay. Okay. We'll say goodbye because coming up next is Becky Hawkins. Her new book is called Transitions, A Nurse's Education About Life and Death. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Want the best life has to offer for you, your family, and friends? There are a number of community-based programs and resources available to individuals for low cost or no cost. No need surfing the net or spending hours on the phone. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with hosts Melissa Jenkins-Simon and Diane Stafford and get the tools to success. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com. Listen to us every Wednesday, live, 10 to 11, Eastern Time. We archive the show at the end of the day, and then you can just bring it up on... uh, uh, on an MP3 and listen to it anytime you want. Anyway, my next guest is Becky Hawkins. And um, as I, uh, in, when I introduced the show, I told you that Becky is a, a, the author of Transitions, a nurse's education about life and death. She's a nurse. Uh, she's been a hospice nurse for about 30 years. And uh, even though she's said earlier to me that she retired. She didn't really retire because she's still continuing with her work. But her book is a a collection of all these experiences that she's had in hospice uh, and all the experiences that she's taken away um, in her life's work. So uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Becky. Thank you, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. It's great to, you know, interesting topic. And when I saw your book, I thought, well, boy, I'd really like to have her on the show because I just went through that experience myself, and some of my listeners know this, but my best friend died uh, about three weeks ago in hospice. And, uh, yeah, and an experience. As a social worker, I had done some hospice work, but, you know, when it's personal, it was a very different experience for me. But before I get into that, let's 
talk about you and the book and and uh, uh, your experience of writing the book. Obviously, came from all the work that you've done. Yes, um, that's that's exactly what the writing has come from. Um, there's just been so many opportunities for um, different bits and pieces of education and wisdom that come from being at the bedsides of these patients, from oncology to hospice and into their homes or or outpatient clinics. And uh, I started writing uh, in the 80s, early 80s, to try to process my emotions with being with these people. And it turned into a newspaper article called Beyond Statistics in our local town. And so... I have all these um, journalings and articles that I decided to put together for other people because just like you were talking about, all of us experience this one way or another. We have either already experienced it or we're in it right now or we know it's going to happen. Where we are at the bedside of a loved one or a friend, a family member, or we're looking at it ourselves. Yep, or our friends and our loved ones are going to be at our bedside. It works. It's always going to work both ways, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So tell us about the book specifically, how you put that together. Is it a book about hospice? Is it process of dying or exactly, you know, kind of chapter to chapter? How do... it's, it's really and truly my stories of the, my patient stories and what I learned from each one of them just by uh, being at their bedside or being giving them their chemo. So it's just me visiting with these patients, and I take you into their homes or I take you to their bedside. I take you to uh, wherever they were um, at the time that I was having this interaction with them. And some of it has great humor. Some of it has uh, immense insight, and some of it is sad. Uh, so, And like the last chapter um, is my called My Brother's Keeper, where... I uh, took care of my brother while he was going through his treatments, and um, and then as his hospice nurse, um, as a sister, and and then his dying process, and then doing his funeral. So this book is um, from the beginning when I was a nurse's aide in 1971, and my experience there, which led me to nursing school, and then uh, some more about my time in nursing school. There's some humor there. And then into my very first job, which was oncology. And, and how, why, why oncology? Here you are, a young person, because, you know, what would draw you to that? As a social worker, actually, in the 70s, I was on the death and dying committee, and that's what they called it. I mean, it was, it yes. was yeah, uh, they later changed the name. But, um, you know, what drew you to, to oncology, let's say, as a young person? Because in our society, and particularly at that, I don't know, particularly at that time, even now, no one wants to really talk about death or dying or... Um, it's kind of one of those not acceptable topics. We try to cover it up, and I still think we do. Well, and, and you're right, and I'm hoping that, that we can help educate one another and especially these, this generation below us, too, to understand that before our generation, Catherine, people were dying at home because normally there was um, maybe two or three generations in a home. And you had them there, and you took care of them, and you you weren't shielded from it, and you understood that this was a natural process, that, you know, you live and you die. And whenever we started taking people and putting them in uh, ICUs to try to shield the family from the pain and the suffering of a loved one dying, I think we were robbed in understanding um, how we do need to be a part of this. 
I was very young, and it did take some time to deal with my emotions. But I, I have a heart for being able to um, be present to someone who is suffering. And a friend of mine in nursing school said there's a brand-new oncology ward opening right uh, at the same time we're graduating. You might be interested in that. And I did fall in love with it. And maybe it was because of that time in the nursing home where I dealt with many people, you know, that were in that transitioning process. There's just, um, that's just a part of me, and that's the great thing about nursing that's so diversified. People can go many different directions. But I was blessed to go this direction. And, Catherine, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Because dying people will reveal to you, I've had so many people that were able to already tell me where they were headed. They were already seeing the other side. And you don't, you don't get that in too many, too many uh, career choices in life where you actually get to be a part of that transition. You know, as, and being involved in a hospice with, with at least two of my close friends, I have a question. That, I mean, I found it a, an experience I, I didn't expect. I mean, I was there for my friend, but then what happened was it transformed me because I was sitting in the, in the room with her and her sisters and her other friends and we're talking and joking and, you know, it's a whole life experiences and people start kind of opening up about, and to, to, to my friend who was dying, and yeah. um, and you learn things about uh, I learned things about her through her sister, and it, it a whole a, as you say transition. A lot happened, a lot that I didn't expect. Um, so it was an amazing process. But I do. As, you're a nurse, so this is the question I want to ask you because they do even in hospice uh, often put patients on morphine so that they won't be in pain. So how does that affect, you know, who, what they're thinking or how they're reacting? Or does it prolong life in a way that maybe it shouldn't? Or just give me some, th- I was curious about that. Well, of course, it's an individual. You know, some people, what you want to do more than anything else is try to make someone as comfortable as they can be in that process. You try to find that, that healthy balance of not shoving anyone over the edge and not withholding either to try to keep them comfortable. So like one sweet little minister that I was taking care of who was able to share with me as he was dying that, that the room was full of angels, he wasn't on any pain medicine at all. He was dying from damage to his heart and lungs, and he wasn't having pain. He just could not breathe, and his heart was quitting. So he didn't have anything to influence that at all. But because people ask me about that, because I've had so many experiences with these people telling me that these loved ones have come in to visit with them before they're passing. And what I share with people who ask me, how, how do we know? Well, that's where you need to really rely on the hospice team and the hospice doctor to help you understand how much pain medicine you know, you can give to keep, every, you know, keep this loved one comfortable and yet also not try to prolong their transition, to let it happen as it happens. Because a lot of people, Catherine, will ask me, am I starving my mother because we're not giving her anything to eat? No, you're not starving her. Her process is moving forward because whatever it is, whether it's cancer or another disease that has already moved her into a point that she's not going to be able 
to continue to live comfortably here, that her body is, you know, going down, then you want them to be able to transition over. People will tell me, patients will tell me, Becky, will you please tell my sister or will you please tell my husband, I'm not hungry. I don't want anything else to eat. So, yes, we've got to educate the public. We have to help people understand what is hospice, what is death and dying, what is okay and not okay. It was such a different experience, you know, when you're in the hospice room and you don't have all the, literally, the bells and whistles and the machines and the monitors and the, and the, and the doctors and nurses coming in every five minutes checking everything and sort of getting in the way. It's so different than that. It's so it's quiet and peaceful and, yeah. uh, you know, as you say, yes, maybe you're getting a, a morphine or uh, something yeah, I think I forgot there was some one other thing that my friend was getting, but um, and and the patient becomes the patient and the friends and the family. It's all about them. It's not all about the treatment. So the whole thing shifts. It's all about if you want to come in, and, and I've mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago. We were drinking glasses of wine. We were sitting there. We were eating. We were, you know, as if someone were actually in their own home, as you mentioned before. Yes, yes, and and that's the way it should be, you know, where, you know, I've been in so many, so many homes and with so many precious people that were passing where, you know, one family might have the TV on because the patient felt better and actually would wake up if you turn the TV off, but they want the cat on the bed. They want the grandchildren playing underneath the bed. They want to know that people can come and go as they want. I had one lady who knew that she didn't have long. The doctors had told her that it might be just a matter of days, and she was at home, and she opened up her home to all of her friends and family and her church members and said, and had it announced, please come and visit me now, because I'm not having a funeral service. I want you to be with me now. Bring, bring me your love now. Bring me your respect now. And you know, that was hard for a lot of people that don't go near a deathbed. But for those that came through, it was a it was a blessing to them, and they would share that. Oh my gosh, this meant the world to me to be able to tell her how much I appreciated what she did for me many many years ago, or somebody that she graduated from high school with that came and shared a fun memory, and you know her daughter was painting her fingernails. Someone brought in a new quilt. Uh, her husband was uh, kind of watching over everybody. They had brought out some of the wedding pictures. Um, there were neighbors that were bringing in coffee and tea, and, and it was like a reception. Yeah. So you're celebrating the person's life when they're still alive, when they're, yes. yeah, yes. rather than afterwards, which is another kind of a new phenomenon. They call it, you know, a celebration of life when the person isn't there. Well, but that's, that's a different, it's a party, but it's really not the same thing as you're talking about, you know, when you have all these people who have been meaningful to you. I guess you just have to get the word, it's okay. A lot of people, why are a lot of people uncomfortable around dying people? Because it brings up their own issues of mortality or their... Exactly, Catherine. That's one of the, the, the biggest ones. Number one, um, a lot of people are uncomfortable with death because of what they have grown up with, being educated with, that when they die, they may not make it to heaven or that they're going to be judged for what they've done wrong. And all of this comes up, you know, in a person's mind about being comfortable or uncomfortable with dying. We, in, especially in this part of the world, we uh, fear death. 
too much. We need to, uh, there again, educate ourselves and help ourselves to understand that it's a natural process. And there, the people, I've had several patients in my book, I wrote about it, that had near-death experiences as well as pre-death experiences that were able to tell us what they experienced in that process. And it's nothing to be feared. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's home. And that we don't have to be afraid of a terrible God that's going to judge us. We need to understand that it's not about love. How does it sit if you're a non-believer? You just believe that you go, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You don't believe. And and at those people, too, I don't try to push anything on anyone. You know, I just try to respect where that person is. But those people usually don't fear death because they don't think there's anything to worry about at all anyway. Well, that's true. That's one of my friends was in that position. She, she was laughing, actually, and then she said, you know, I really don't think that I'm going, I, you know, I've been here and that's where I am and I'll go back to the earth and, you know, and, um, you know, wasn't particularly a, a, a religious person. So um, but I think you're right. That's true. She didn't, didn't fear death. But um, I think the whole thing about education, I mean, I thought that I knew a lot about, you know, as a social worker and doing a lot of hospital social work about death and dying, but I didn't, I really didn't. For instance, like I learned that, I mean, the last thing to go is your hearing. So somebody might be there and they may look like they're, you know, almost dead, but they can still hear you. Yes, they can still hear you, and that's a big thing that the near-death experience people will tell you or pre-death, they will tell you when they're... When they're out of that experience, I heard you say such and such, and I saw uh, my brother down the hallway crying for me because they're out of their body and they're able to experience that. Even if you don't believe in that part of it, you know, hearing is the last sense to go. And so we always share with the family and the friends, you know, what you want them to hear is what you want to speak. If you want them to not to know something you're saying, you need to keep it to yourself. You you need not to say it, exactly. No, that's true. And the other thing that I learned, this was a physical thing. I mean, I think the more you know about something and you you, less fearful one becomes. Knowledge is powerful. Knowledge is powerful. I mean, my friend, her... I, I always thought that when you died, you, be, you the body became very, very cold, and maybe that's true at the end, but just a few days, a couple days before she died, I mean, her head was very hot and her feet were very warm, and apparently, I guess what happens is that your body isn't able to regulate the temperature so that you, you're warm, not cold. For some reason, I thought she'd be very cold because I went to hug her, and it was, no, it, she was very, very warm. I mean, I, that's just one of the kind of physical things that I, I learned about it. But. And that's not with everybody. It does happen with some people. A lot of my patients, especially cancer patients, will have uh, their temperature spike towards the end. Yeah. But also uh, a majority of my patients do become very cool because the, the heart is slowing down, the circulation is slowing down, the organs are uh, beginning to, to quit. And so that blood flow does change, and they will be modeled. Their feet will be cold, sometimes ice cold, up through their knees. Uh, they will be purple. Uh, their fingertips will turn purple. So, it, yes, it does happen both ways. I have a question. Becky, what, what did you learn? I mean, what was, what's the biggest 
kind of life lesson that you learn from each one of the, your patients? Or is there anyone that stands out, that, you know, something that you totally, that you got from that patient and the experience of being with him or her at the end that you just really were surprised? Um, and, and, and another part to that is sometimes doesn't it take time, maybe even a few days, a few weeks, a few months later to process it? That, and, yeah. that is so true, Catherine, and that's what I found in writing my book. I was pulling out all of this stuff and rereading it. You know, I was 30 when I started, and I was looking at what I had journaled, and I thought, oh, my gosh, look at this. I didn't fully grasp that then. Some of the things that they taught me are that we need to live this day and leave the ghost in the past and don't rush ahead to tomorrow because the moment, this moment, is what is real time. Some of them would share with me, I wish I'd have done this, I wish I'd have done that. And um, that helped me, too. You know, what am I doing with my time? What kind of footprints am I leaving? And how do I forgive people? One guy said, you know, Becky, I, I have come to this point in my life where I'm getting ready to pass, and I've been angry at somebody for 40 years. And he, has, he said, that hasn't served me well at all. He said, I've got to get this right and forgive this person and then forgive myself for being this way for so long. So there were so many things that that they brought to me, but I think one of the the biggest highlights for me was that each of us needs to live our authentic life, to not be afraid to live and be who we are. Because even if we live to be 110, it's a brief journey. And then also, don't be afraid to die. They will turn to you sometimes and say, oh my, it is so beautiful, so beautiful before they pass. Life is a journey and death is the destination. That's one of the uh, things that I remember when I uh, went to uh, synagogue. That's in one of the prayer books, which kind of sums it up. It's true. Uh, Life is the journey and death is the destination for all of us. Another thing that they taught me that I thought was really good, too, because um, sometimes we're all about our careers and uh, how much money we make and who we know and how big our house is, how many cars we have, all of that. And they helped me to understand that we don't take any of that with us. All that we take with us, what we're learning, if you would receive this, is the memories and the love that we share with one another that's woven into the DNA of our spirits. None of that other stuff. None of the other stuff, that's true. And you mentioned one of the biggest or the regret that stands out in your mind and the the gentleman who said, you know, I I was angry at somebody for 30 years and where did it get me? Nowhere. Uh, What other ones would you, you know, stood out that people really regretted that, I mean, I think the one that you just mentioned is probably, unfortunately, pretty common. But uh, Yes. Well, yeah. let me share with you one little fella's story. I was uh, working in an outpatient oncology unit giving chemotherapy, and this little guy came in, and it was time for me to get his uh, chemo ready and his pre-meds ready, and, and he was a tough old cowboy. And he sat down and he said, say, I want to talk to you before you give me that stuff that kind of makes me drowsy. And I said, okay, go ahead. I'll get your stuff ready. And he said, well... I've just been thinking about this. I think that we're going to be able to knock this cancer down, but, you know, it makes a fella pause here, and I've just been thinking. And, well, I, I went to a funeral the other day and, and went to see this uh, 
this fella that I'd known for years and his family. And, and Becky, it was standing room only in that place. There were so many people there. And, and then they got up and they started sharing about what this man had done in their lives and, and how he was always sharing from his garden or sharing from his his eggs that his hens had laid and, and always helping somebody if they needed help on their farm and always looking out after people. And he said, I was just looking at that crowd and I got to thinking, who would stand up for me? He said, you know, about the only time my neighbor hears me say things when I'm cussing my cows. And he said, you know, my mother-in-law, whenever she pulls up, I run and hide in the back bedroom because, you know, she just talks a lot. And my poor kids, all they hear me say is, did you do your homework? Did you help your mom with those chores? And my wife works from sunup to sundown, and I don't know that I've ever told her how much I appreciate her. He said, you know, I've been thinking I, I want to change that while i got time. He said, because that neighbor chopped ice for me last winter when I was too weak to, to hold an axe in my hand and was able to water my cows because of that, and he never asked for a thank you or anything. He said, I, I want to go tell him how much I appreciate that. He said, I want to tell my wife that I could have married a better woman, and I'm proud to be with her. And I'm going to tell my kids and spend time with them that that I appreciate what good kids they are and, and that I'm going to go with them to some of those basketball games and, and spend some time with them doing other things. And he said, well, I guess I'd have to tell you that I'm not going to be quite as good right off the bat at sitting with my mother-in-law, but he said, I'm going to try it. <laughs> That's a great story. That's a, you know, and, and you know, as you're telling me this story, I, I think has anybody said to you, "I have really no regrets. I'm really happy about the way I lived my life." That yeah, uh, you know, kind of the opposite, and that I have done all of the things that this 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 man said that he didn't do or wished he or will um, wants yes. to do. Yes, I had a dear, precious lady I was visiting. That she was she was dying from um, her heart being in really bad shape, and she was back home. They had used the paddles on her to bring her back twice in ICU, and she had a serious talk with them. She said, look, my heart's not going to get any better. I'm 82 years old. I'm not going to get a heart transplant. Let me go home. I'm going to die, and I've got things I want to do. So she, when I met her, was sitting in this beautiful little recliner rocker that she had in her lovely antique home, and she was boxing up things for nieces and nephews, out of her antiques, her jewelry, her possessions, and sharing with me what a good life she had had and how she had been blessed because of her opportunity to bless others, how her experience and her relationship with God was what got her up every morning and what blessed her every every night when she went to sleep, how she'd had the best husband in the world, and how she loved her animals, how she loved her flower garden. This woman was just a beautiful example of she, how she got up every day thinking positive thoughts and what can I do for somebody else. So she died the way she lived, yes. it sounds like. Yes. We, I, the next day that I went back, because she threatened me, she said, if you try to do CPR on me, if I go down, I'll haunt you. <laughs> and I said, okay, we won't do that. And I went the next day, and uh, her neighbor had found her in her chair, and she was gone. That's a, that's another 
I was going to say a great. I don't know what I should say. A great story, but that's a good story. That's a, yeah. That's a yes. It is. A yeah, great story. it is a great story. It, it is a great story. We have to say goodbye, and I, I, I obviously I want to mention um, your book again, Transitions: A Nurse's Education About Life and Death. And um, you can find it on BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com, and on my website, LadyHawkPublishing.com, and on my website. I have more stories on there, testimonies from families, all kinds of stuff for them, and also the e-version of my book for your Kindles or your Nooks or whatever you have. Oh, terrific. Okay, so you can read it on your e-books as well. Yes. Great. It's been great talking to you, Becky. You do great work. And it doesn't sound like you're going to stop doing it, so that's a good thing, too. Um, Becky Hawkins, Transitions, A Nurse's Education About Life and Death. We have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and The Catherine Zox Show. I hope you enjoyed the morning. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.